When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Patriots Beat here on the CLNS Radio Station. I am your host, Jeff Kane, at Boston Fat Guy on Twitter. Joining me as always is Bobby Kavitsky at Bobby underscore K91. Also on Twitter, you can follow the podcast at, at Patriots Beat. CLNS Radio, of course, at, at CLNS Radio. For you Facebook fans out there, www.facebook.com slash Patriots Beat or www. Facebook.com slash CLNS Radio. Well, we are back from our summer vacation, our little hiatus. We needed to recharge the batteries. We're not human. We are just Patriots fans, but uh, I guess that would make us human. But anyways, uh, we're ready to kick some butt and talk about the Patriots here. So without further ado, I'll bring in my main man, Bobby Kovitsky. Jeff, you know, it felt great to hit the beach. My surf game isn't much better than it was going into the summer, but... That's neither here nor there. I'm just excited to get back to football. And we got training camp right around the corner. Training camp kicking off on July 30th. Very exciting to think about the fact that we are a mere two weeks away from training camp. It feels like just yesterday they were raising the Lombardi Trophy. This offseason was jam-packed with everything from, of course, uh, the Super Bowl ticker tape parade on the duck boats to uh, the NFL draft, free agency, and of course the deflate gate. Let's not even talk about that anymore. But it uh, it was a very quick off season. The New England Patriots, the 2015 version, will start defending their crown in two short weeks. And I can't wait. It seems like everyone is gunning for the Patriots. You know, you look at the rest of the AFC East, noticeably improved. Still no quarterbacks. You know, Tannehill might be the closest thing to Brady in the division, and there's obviously a sizable, sizable gap between the two. And then, of course, you do have to look at 
the possibility of a Brady suspension and what role that might play in the Patriots having home field or not in the playoffs, assuming they get there. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see. I mean, the hearings were held. I just, I don't understand how there could be any possible way that anyone with a brain on their shoulders could think that this is not just, you know, scientifically proven that it's the ideal gas law. You know, I mean, that's what it is. Brady didn't do anything. It should be a team fine, you know, which should have been $25,000, but Roger Goodell had his panties in a bunch, and because it's the Patriots, it's more. But I don't expect the uh, NFL to give back the first-round draft pick or the fourth-round draft pick or the million dollars, but I'm looking at this, and I'm saying Brady gets the suspension nullified, and if he doesn't, it's going to court. Um, and I don't see Brady missing a game. I'm really confident on that. Yeah, and Jeff, there's even been some reports that based on defamation of character, even if the suspension is completely overturned, Brady might take Goodell to court anyways because of, like I said, the damage that's been done to his reputation. So it's going to be interesting to see how this thing plays out. And, you know, for a while I was convinced that they were going to meet him halfway you know, drop the suspension to two games, and then from there we'd see if Brady was willing to go to the mat. Now it certainly seems like he is willing to go to the mat, and it also seems more and more likely that this whole thing might get dropped. You know, it's funny. Donald Trump, who told uh, Tom Brady to sue the NFL for defamation of character for a quarter of a billion dollars, they'll settle quicker and this and that, well, Mr. Mr. Trump is uh, the Donald is is a mere five miles from me right now at a at a speech in Laconia, New Hampshire. So uh, very interesting uh, that Donald is here, and uh, yeah, I mean he could definitely sue for defamation of character and win. This is this is ridiculous, but you know what? We've given that enough prop, enough talk, uh, you know, enough inflating over the uh, over the last six months. It's time to talk a little Patriots football. Very interesting to see what happens. Of course, uh, the Patriots beat team on CLNS Radio is starting their off-season training camp look at all the positions. You know, we're talking about quarterback here. We have Tom Brady, of course, is arguably one of the best quarterbacks of all time, if not the best. Uh, six Super Bowls, four wins, three MVPs in the Super Bowl. I mean, just nails last uh, last year in the fourth quarter against Seattle. And then you got Jimmy Garoppolo, who you know looked very good last year in um, in the preseason. Uh, looked good against the Kansas City Chiefs. A little mediocre against the Buffalo Bills, uh, but he didn't have his full complement of players to throw to. Uh, our contributor Ollie Connolly did a great job looking at uh, Jimmy uh, Jimmy Garoppolo earlier in the season. Of course, they signed former. Uh, Green Bay Packer uh, quarterback in Matt Flynn. So I look at this Patriots quarterback position, and it's deep, man. It is deep. Yeah, it's been a long time since they had three legitimate quarterbacks. And this is more depth than they've had in a while. And really the whole storyline is who's going to be the starter on opening day and the first month of the season. Will Brady be back? Is it going to be all Garoppolo? And, of course, the Patriots, with Flynn in the fold, are well-prepared for whatever should happen. Exactly. I mean, they should be pretty well-prepared. You know, I, I for one, uh, when the Brady suspension was first brought down, I looked at the optimistic side of things and thought, 
All right, give me Jimmy Garoppolo for the first four games. Uh, you know, hopefully he gets them to a two and two, three and one record. Uh, and then in the off season, you have two starting caliber quarterbacks, uh, one that you could trade. Now I'm sitting there going, you know what? Brady's going to be 38 on August 3rd. Give me Brady for the next two seasons. You know, let me see what he's got. I don't think he's going to get suspended, uh, or he is suspended, but I think it'll be rescinded. And, you know, you're in good hands with TB12. So, I mean, I'm excited with that, and I love what they've put around him. I, I re Especially not just the wide receiver group, but the tight end group, Bobby. I love what they've done all the way around. I mean, if you look at what the Patriots have at the wide receiver position, they have Julian Edelman, Minitron. They have Danny Amendola, who really came on the last five games of last season. And, of course, Brandon LaFell, who I've called a poor man's David Givens uh, since he stepped on the field. That is a solid top three. And then you have, you know, that little question mark behind them, but a guy in Aaron Dobson who caught 37 passes in his rookie season with the Patriots. You have Brandon Gibson, uh, who has experience in the uh, Josh McDaniel system. And this is a guy with over 200 receptions in his career and 13 touchdowns. So he can play a little bit. Uh, and then, of course, you have, you know, the fan favorite from last preseason, which is Brian Timms. So I'm excited about what they have at the wide receiver position. And then, of course, you have the man, the myth, the legend, Rob Gronkowski, uh, to go along with his twin tower brother now here in <laughs> Scott Chandler. I'm, I'm loving the, the weapons that they have. And I'm a guy who like, likes them to pound the rock. But I love what they've put around uh, Tom Brady for weapons. It's the classic, the sum of the parts is better than the single players as a whole. Yeah, and bringing back Amendola was one of the best moves the Patriots made this offseason. Obviously, it's on a team-friendly deal and gives the chance for Amendola to recoup some of the money lost moving forward You know, after this season. And they have the potential to have a lot of depth at that wide receiver spot. You look at Amendola being both a legitimate number three receiver and a capable backup should Julian Edelman go down. So they're well protected there. And then you talked about Dobson. We'll see what development he has. This seems like a make-or-break training camp for him. And then with Gibson, he's a guy that Josh McDaniels is familiar with, has a history with, seems to like him a lot. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how he's doing health-wise. Does he still have the same level of explosion? Can he still run routes as crisp as he used to because he's another versatile receiver who would really help. And, Jeff, like you said, the twin towers at tight end, Gronk and Scott Chandler, is going to be a lethal red zone combination that should make the Patriots very effective from the 20-yard line and in. I, you know, I absolutely love that twin towers in the red zone because both of these guys are big. Both of these guys can catch the ball. They have huge catch radiuses. And they both can block. Gronkowski is a phenomenal blocker. So they can run the ball in that ace formation and really get in there. And, and, and just think about this. I mean, we saw last year Brandon LaFell and Tom Brady develop that back uh, shoulder fade pass, which really worked uh, down the stretch. LaFell has, has become a master at that. We saw Aaron Dobson, who's six foot three, 215 pounds, before he got injured uh, in 2013, he was starting to come along real well. So you get into the red zone there, and, and, and you have a LeGarrette Blount or a Jonas Gray who's able to run the ball 
behind this offensive line and these two tight ends. And then you have LaFell or Dobson on the outside who can catch, you know, that fade pattern. And then you're either Amendola or uh, or Edelman doing, you know, their little jig routes there. I mean, that is pretty dangerous. Any combination there, uh, you know, they can they can sit there and just, just kill it. I, I love it. I think the Patriots are going to be really good at getting inside of the red zone and scoring this year. Once they get into that red area, I have a feeling that they're going to uh, be among the team leaders in touchdown percentage. Oh, absolutely. I would certainly expect and hope that to be the case. And, you know, Jeff, one of the things that I love about Brandon LaFell, you talk about the comparison with David Givens. Well, one major difference between the two is LaFell's ability to get yards after the catch. It's one of my favorite aspects of his game. It's part of what makes him so effective. And, you know, there's obvious differences between him and Edelman and Amendola, which is nice that he brings a different dynamic to the offense. But all three of them are effective at getting that yak, those yards after the catch. And LaFell seems to excel in that area, which is very nice. He really does. I mean, we saw him uh, really have his first breakout game was against the Kansas City Chiefs. He was the only player that actually played great in that game. And then it was that huge game in Week 8 against the Chicago Bears where he caught 11 11 balls. And he really, really moved forward um, in throughout the rest of the season. In the in the postseason, what uh, was nails. I mean, caught the first touchdown pass from Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. Uh, Brandon LaFell, who really was the type of guy last year when he was signed, you know, you didn't know what you were going to get out of him. I mean, I personally was thinking, you know, maybe a three or four wide receiver, uh, nothing much, but went out and set career highs in all his categories. Um, and, and does he match those numbers this year? You know, maybe he doesn't, but with what they have around here, uh, LaFell has definitely brought on some real, uh, you know, a, a real forte with Brady, which doesn't often happen with uh, wide receivers who come in here as free agents. They're a very, very big thing. Uh, for Brandon LaFell last year. Yeah, and you just nailed it. You know, there wasn't a lot of hype at the time of the signing. Then in training camp, they started pumping his tires a little bit, talking about his potential, talking about how he's been working with Brady. They're getting the chemistry down. You know, he's learning the playbook. And you didn't really have much of a chance to see it in the preseason. And then you didn't have much of a chance the first month of the season because of the offensive line and everything that was going on on that side of the football but that Kansas City game, you saw glimpses, and part of that wasn't even with Brady. It was really with Garoppolo who came in. Yeah. And then, sure enough, LaFell, from that point, you know, that seemed to be a spark as he really took off from there and proved to be a crucial part of this offense. Oh, definitely. And, you know, one thing I want to talk about in Aaron Dobson, because I'm still a believer in Aaron Dobson. I mean... Yeah, last year was kind of a wasted year, kind of a redshirt year. Uh, you know what? And I'm not going to say that the Patriots set him up to fail, but you know they took him off. That he was on the pop list. He had that uh, injury to his foot uh, where he had to have off-season surgery. Uh, he didn't come off the physically unable to perform list until mid-August. By then, you know uh, Lafell had had enough time ahead of him. Of course, uh, Brian Timms was getting some playing time there. 
and, and I just didn't understand the reason why they would have taken him off the pop list. I would have liked to have seen them uh, leave him on the pop list until week six and then decide, you know, you get those three weeks after you take a guy off the physically unable to perform list uh, to decide what to do with him. I much rather would have let them see what they could have done by leaving him on there. And you know what? If if the injury didn't come back, if they didn't need him, you know, stashing him on IR, he ended up on IR anyways. He went out this offseason into Arizona and went out to, you know, the athlete's uh, training facility out there. This is a kid who, yes, he's still young. He's only 23 years old. Uh, this is still a kid with a bright future ahead of him. He can play in this offense, 37 receptions, uh, you know, the most receptions by a rookie wide receiver um, by the Patriots since Julian Edelman in 2009. And you have to go all the way back to uh, Dion Branch in 2002 to see the same kind of, uh, you know, rookie receiver out there. I still think they can develop this guy. And while I don't think he's a deep threat, I think he's a sideline threat. I think he's a threat that can, can get inside the red zone and get that big catch radius and do wonders. My opinion of Aaron Dobson has not changed. And for our loyal listeners, I'm sorry. You're going to hear me say this again. For our new listeners, this is the breakdown right here. Aaron Dobson had a what I would deem successful rookie season. He showed that he can learn the playbook, which a lot of people, veterans and rookies alike, do not seem to be able to get down. He mastered one of the one of the go-to routes of the Patriots, one that Jeff already mentioned, LaFell's ability to execute, and that's the back shoulder catch. And he proved that in a breakout game his rookie season against Pittsburgh, where he had a couple touchdowns, I believe over 100 yards receiving as well. Then he gets hurt towards the end of the season, not able to do anything in the playoffs, and, you know, delaying the surgery. He wasn't able to have much of an offseason, wasn't really able to do anything in training camp or the preseason. So the whole season, you just knew going in that year two for Aaron Dobson was going to be a wash, that he wasn't going to be able to get much out of it. And sure enough, they tried to put him on the field, came off the pup, and against Green Bay, they just sent him in there for a couple go routes in the freezing cold, not ready to go, and, you know, gets hurt, can't finish the season. So Year two was just a, a wasted year for Aaron Dobson. But like Jeff said, you hear him, you know, he's working out in Arizona. He's doing this and that this offseason. So he's a guy who it's nice to see he gets it. He knows how important this season is for his career. And this is really going to set the bar for the rest of Aaron Dobson's career, his NFL trajectory. And we're going to see whether or not, you know, going forward that he's a member of the New England Patriots or he's looking to – continue his NFL dream with another team. It's going to be interesting to see, Jeff, how it all plays out. Yeah, quite the turnover between the 2013 AFC Championship game where you had Julian Edelman, Danny Amendola, and Austin Colley, uh, and Michael Humanamanui catching passes from Tom Brady against the Denver Broncos to when you have, uh, you know, Edelman, Amendola, LaFell, and Gronkowski catching passes. So that is a huge difference there. I really think that Aaron Dobson uh, might be able to finally realize his potential. Uh, you know, you're right. This is a make-or-break uh, season for him. This is a make-or-break, um, you know, training camp for him. If he can come out strong, 
and, and prove that he is, you know, even if he's just the fourth or fifth wide receiver on this team, if he can prove that, he's worth keeping on because, you know, Amendola may or may not be here next year. You know, LaFell signed a three-year deal, so he'll be going into his last year. The Patriots have not developed a wide receiver really since, um, you know, Deion Branch. I understand that Julian Edelman has been developed by this team, but before the 2013 season, Edelman was out there free and clear for anyone to sign. You know, he could have been signed by anyone. Luckily, he came back to the Patriots, and with the injuries to Danny Amendola and to Rob Gronkowski, uh, and, and all the rookie wide receivers who really didn't know much in 2013, he was able to get 105 receptions, uh, and, and he followed that back up with 92 last year. Guy I want to talk about is Josh Boyce. This is a guy coming out of TCU, uh, you know, raw but had good speed. Uh, can do I thought could do a lot of things. Ended up getting cut last year, re-signed to the practice squad, and then signed a futures contract uh, back in uh, December. This is a, definitely a make or break for him as well. This is a guy who can play, uh, you know, the X, the Y, and the Z position in catching the ball. He can play all over the field. It's just, you know, does he have the mental capacity? There were many times last year in the preseason where it just didn't seem like Josh Boyce understood what he was doing. To me, there's only one of two possible outcomes for Josh Boyce. One is he gets cut and he looks to latch on somewhere else. And the other is practice squad. There's just uh, He's the guy who I would be stunned, quite frankly, if they make the 53-man roster because you look at Edelman and Amendola are ahead of him, and there's just no way that he's passing either one of those two on the depth chart. And then the fact that there are positions, whether it be on the defensive line, in the secondary, and even a couple spots on offense, where they're going to carry some depth and you know, when you talk about a roster crunch, you can't take on a third slot receiver when you're in the position the Patriots are in. So there's just there's no way, in my opinion, that he makes the 53. No, I don't think he's going to make the 53 either. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if and what they can get out of him uh, in the preseason. If you know, even if they can turn around and, and he shows some some signs of life and and they can deal him for a fifth or sixth round draft pick, or you know stash him on uh, you know injured reserve or the uh, or the practice squad. It'll be interesting what they end up doing with a guy like Josh Boyce, uh, Brian Timms. You know I don't have I don't have a lot of uh, faith in this guy. I know how much people just loved him uh, because you know people thought that they watched him with Jimmy Garoppolo last year and the deep passes, and Garoppolo throws a beautiful deep ball. But Sands of, of 2007, the New England Patriots offense is not about throwing the deep ball. It's about timing patterns. It's about option routes. You know, it's about getting open. It's about Tom Brady reading this, the defense the same way as his wide receivers are reading the defense. It's the reason why guys like Troy Brown and Julian Edelman and Deion Branch and Wes Welker have been so successful in this offense is because they sit out there, they see what what the defense is giving them, whether it's a man-to-man look, whether it's a, a cover three look, a cover two look, and, and, and they have option routes, and the team has to be on the same page. It's why Tom Brady has become so good and so masterful 
since his rookie season and, and moving forward. And, and now, you know, unbelievable, he's, he's going to be 38 in three weeks, that he's just mastered this offense, and he's got these wide receivers that do it as well. And then, you know, none of them other than Randy Moss has ever had huge athletic ability. You know, they've been guys that are smart, heady football players who can read defenses. So I look at a guy like Brian Timms, and yes, he could stretch the defense, but he's not a route runner. You know, he's not the kind of guy that 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 is gonna you know put his foot in the ground and 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 zig out when uh, you know he's he's selling a post and, and then he makes it into a fade. He's not that type of guy. He's not the type of guy who's gonna get a ten yard out and catch it. He's the kind of guy who's got one thing going for him, and that's you know, deep speed. He made one phenomenal catch last year, a 53-yard touchdown pass against Buffalo. Other than that, he just wasn't there for me. And, you know, that's just one of those things is that that shiny hood ornament. You know, it's one of those things out there that uh, a lot of people have caught on when with the wide receivers who get these big contracts, the guys like, uh, you know, uh, Des Bryant and, um, and I'll – mess up his name but uh, Thomas out of uh, out of uh, the Denver Broncos just signed huge contracts but those shiny hood ornaments aren't the guys that win Super Bowls I mean it has been 14 years since a Super Bowl champion has a 100 catch receiver that last receiver was Troy Brown in 2001 well let's also keep in mind that we have talked about it on the show before that Julian Edelman if he doesn't sit out the last couple of games at the end of the season, I know. <laughs> he, he gets 100 catches. And listen, with Brian Timms, you know, he seems like a great guy. He's got a good story. He's easy to root for. Seems like a really hard worker. And that's all the more reason that I hate speaking in definitive terms. You know, these guys can develop, especially at such a young age. But with Timms, I, I honestly don't see him, not to rule it out, but I just personally – don't see him developing into anything more than a guy who runs go routes and is just a deep threat. And like you said, that's not what the Patriots offense is based on. They're based on the short and intermediate levels. It's a lot of quick passing action. And that's why it's so important. So much is predicated on Tom Brady's ability to execute at the line of scrimmage. That's where most of the action takes place for new England's offense. And, they're lucky because in that area, Brady is honestly second to none. I uh, can't can't agree with you more. You know, you had mentioned a little bit of a roster logjam uh, earlier with the wide receiver position. One of the positions earlier in the offseason that I thought was going to be kind of a logjam was tight end. You, we've talked about it with the Twin Towers in Rob Gronkowski and uh, Scott Chandler. Then, we, of course, there was Tim Wright and Fred Davis, and then, of course, uh, six-round draft pick A.J. Derby to go along with the Who Man. Um, that's been thinned out a little bit here. Uh, Tim Wright was uh, released. Fred Davis was released. Uh, now you have um, Rob Gronkowski, Who Man. you got uh, you got Chandler like we talked about. you got A.J. Derby. And, and then you got a guy named uh, Jimmy Mundane, a rookie undrafted free agent out of Kansas, and uh, you got Jake Paquette, the former uh, Arkansas defensive end, uh, who's been you know around the team for three plus years, with all the players that they've drafted at defensive end last year and the year before. They're uh, looking at a position switch for him. 
uh, going to be long odds for him to make the uh, the team. But uh, let's talk about this tight end. We talked a little bit to begin with, but let's talk about who man AJ Derby and those two and what we think they can bring to uh, to the New England Patriots. Yeah, and it's going to be really interesting, Jeff. Will the Patriots keep three tight ends, or will they go four deep at the position, which likely means both Hooman and Derby make the team? You know, if it's a competition between the two of them for one spot, where potentially Derby's put on the practice squad, it's going to be interesting because Hooman does bring a different dynamic. He's a better run blocker than Derby. He's a better run blocker than Chandler too. But last season. He was awful in pass protection, and so he's someone who really has to have a good training camp to make this team. Derby's also a slightly cheaper option, you know, being a rookie, of course. So I, I like Derby's versatility, but he's also a rookie. He's going to have to prove it in training camp, and if he does, Jeff, that might mean the end of who, man? It could mean the end of Who Man. I've been waiting for the end of Who Man for a couple of years. <laughs> a lot of people have. <laughs> you know, you wonder, you wonder about him. He, he's, you know, he's the ultimate grinder. Um, another guy we could talk about a little bit is James Devlin. Uh, you know, the fullback. Um, he can be used as a tight end as well. Um, but how much, you know, how much are we going to see a man like Who Man in the backfield? Or, you know, Gronkowski was lined up in the backfield a couple times there. And how much are we going to see the the um, the ace set with the two tight ends and basically seeing them get away from the I formation and being able to run without bringing in a sixth offensive lineman? I think with these uh, tight ends here, they might be able to do it. And having Devlin in the fold is another reason why who man's expendable you know you talk about the versatility being able to line him up in the backfield as a blocker get a head start and all that or maybe come out you know for a quick pass Devlin can do all that and even though he's undersized he's shown that he can be effective in certain situations when he's lined up you know next to the tackles or obviously at his natural fullback position even split out wide sometimes so, you know, there's really nothing who man brings that Devlin can't do. Neither one's that effective a pass catcher. And Devlin coming out of the backfield is just fine to me in comparison to what you're getting with who man in that category. And real one last quick thought, A.J. Derby, our friend Mike Loiko from NEPatriotsDraft.com on a previous episode uh, said that he thought Derby was one of the most underrated uh tight ends in this year's draft, a guy with a lot of potential that actually reminded him of Rob Gronkowski. So I'll be interested to see when we're down there at training camp exactly what's going to go on with uh, with A.J. Derby and this tight end group. Yeah, and Derby, you know, talk about size, 6'5", 255, guy who made a positional change in college. You can see if you just, you know, even if you just YouTube his highlights, just a get an idea of who we're talking about here you can see the athleticism for that size you can see that he's got good hands so he's certainly someone who i think the patriots are going to look to develop oh definitely definitely moving on a little bit uh we still got two offensive positions to talk about we'll hold the running backs for last as i like to say save the best for last and you know how much i love running backs well on thursday Dan Connolly uh, announced his retirement, says he's going to retire from the NFL to spend some more time 
with his family and uh, with injury concerns, seeing that he's been diagnosed with a few concussions. Last year, Dan Connolly was everything you wanted once he was inserted at left guard, taking over for uh, Logan Mankins. When they got out there with Ryan Wendell and Brian Stork and, of course, the two tackles in Soldier and Vollmer, that starting five was unbelievable and excellent. Of course, Conley was a uh, an offensive captain last year. Now you have a hole. You, you, you have a hole here uh, at left guard. Now, are they going to, you know, move in and, and, you know, bring in Josh Klein to play there? We've seen Klein move in and play there and play decent. Uh, you have uh, Chris Baker there, and then you have Ryan Wendell who could slide over, and then you have the two rookies uh, in Trey Jackson and Shaq Mason. Big uh, road grader in Shaq Mason, more of a technical guard in, in Trey Jackson. Neither one of them uh, played any real spots at left guard in college, so I'm uh, looking to see what's going to happen with Googe in this uh, offensive line uh, this year. I just, even even knowing how last season played out, I would hate to go through a first month of the season where the offensive line resembles what it did the first month of last season. That just, that would be horrible. And Dan Connolly, he was a calming presence for both the guys next to him. He helped take some of the load off of Brian Stewart's plate. He helped settle Nate Solder down. Solder had an up-and-down season, but Connolly playing left guard right next to him, certainly made things easier on him, certainly made Solder a better left tackle. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, someone's coming in there, presumably, unless there's a free agent addition, like I'll just throw out Evan Mathis. So unless there's an addition like that, someone who's relatively inexperienced at left guard is going to be playing there. I don't think Wendell really has the size to make the switch to the left side of the line. So, you know, in my estimation, you're looking at Trey Jackson starting over there. You know, him and Shaq Mason, it's going to be very interesting to watch the two of them in training camp, watch the pads come on, and see how they look in the preseason as well. Oh, exactly. And you brought up Evan Mathis, of course, the former Philadelphia Eagle all-pro type of player. Uh, that would be the ultimate uh, Bill Belichick type of signing um, it brings back memories of Brian Waters, who was brought in here uh, in the 2011 season and, and, and stepped right in uh, a week or two after being signed and started all 16 games uh, as they went to the Super Bowl. I uh, couldn't convince him to come back for 2012, and that's when you had uh, you know Ryan Wendell and Dan Connolly starting to play those guard and center positions. Uh, Connolly, of course, playing uh, the right guard position. Uh, and playing fairly well. So that might be the gap that is bridged between um, this season and the 2016 season. But it's become more and more that you've seen uh, interior offensive linemen stepping in and playing very well. So I'm not that bit of a scared uh, of these two um, rookie guards coming in and playing and playing to a high level. And they remind me a little more of what Googe is looking for in his offensive linemen as they continue to transition away from Dante Scarnecchia's offensive line. And Jeff, just to give an update on Evan Mathis, he recently said that, quote, exactly what my options are aren't as clear as they will be in a week or two. He said that via Adam Beasley of the Miami Herald. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, in that time, 
where he lands. Drew Rosenhaus said right around the time that he first got released by Philadelphia that he had six teams reach out to him immediately, but that they want to be methodical in all this, take their time in making a decision. We're obviously getting closer to Mathis making a decision. And obviously the Patriots are a team that like to keep things close to the vest, so we have no idea if they're one of those six teams or not, if they've reached out to Mathis in between then and now. And I do think, though, that he would be a good addition to this team, but we'll know more about whether or not he's necessary come training camp when we see how the two rooks look. Oh, exactly. So it'll be very interesting as we move forward for the New England Patriots and what they do on this offensive line. Uh, of course, they do have the stalwarts in uh, in, in both Nate Soldier and Sebastian Fulmer outside. Second-year player Cameron Fleming. That's another guy you could see. I remember during the draft, they talked about how he might transition nicely into a guard position. Last year, we saw him come in as a tackle eligible uh, for running plays, uh, especially against the Colts in the AFC Championship game, and really helped give them uh, you know, a little unbalanced line and help them be able to run a little more. I mean, you got a guy here, 6'6", 320, and Cameron Fleming. Uh, this is a guy that could do well. Marcus Cannon, of course, the uh, the player out of TCU who signed a uh, contract extension in the middle of the last season, 6'5", 335. Uh, these are guys, big body guys that they can run behind. And moving as we move into the uh, you know halfbacks here and running backs, I'm I'm looking at uh, this offensive line, and I'm hoping that this season, especially with Rob Gronkowski and Scott Chandler, that the New England Patriots are going to be able to run uh, behind a five-man line because it did seem at times last year, even though they did win the Super Bowl, that they were not able to run unless they came in with a tackle eligible. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone remembers the Baltimore game, the AFC Divisional round, where they didn't run once in the second half, so, you know, Usually, we just say that the Patriots' running game is a complementary piece to their offensive attack. It was non-existent in the second half of that game against the Ravens. And, Jeff, much like in the secondary, there's just there's a lot of unproven talent there. It's such a different position, obviously, in the Patriots' offense than it is in a lot of other offenses around the league. And there's a lot less pressure, but still, it is crucial, especially when it comes to short yardage situations and even just being able to provide some balance and keeping defenses respectable at times, keeping them honest. So I have no idea what's going to shake out, to be honest. LeGarrette Blount is what he is. Jonas Gray, we got to see, was he a one-hit wonder or is he the real deal? Can he be a solid contributor this season and moving forward? Will he even make the roster? What do they have in Travaris Cadet? There's just there's so many unknown pieces. James White is another guy that, based on all of his predecessors in that Kevin Falk type of role, that we expect someone to be able to come in and have success. But until he does it, you can't go pencil him in for those type of numbers, that level of production. It's going to be interesting to see what they have and whether or not it helps this team or if it hurts them. As our colleague Sam Pericola pointed out, in his uh, preview of the running back position, as much as of a turnaround as there has been at defensive back, uh, we look and we at this running back position, and you have 
you know, some stalwarts gone. You have Shane Vereen, uh, who had two very good seasons back to back for the New England Patriots. Uh, Vereen had a phenomenal Super Bowl uh, and a phenomenal uh, run up this year uh, at, at catching the ball. Didn't do much running the ball, but he did great in pass protection and catching the ball in a long line of Patriots third down backs uh, with a torturous pass from Kevin Falk to uh, Danny Woodham, then of course to Shane Vereen. So, I look and I look at a guy like Tavares Cadet and uh, James White and wonder if they're going to be that third down back or is it going to be a guy like Brandon Bolden? Then who's going to tote that rock? You know, we talked about there. Is it going to be running back by committee? You have LeGarrette Blount on this team. Um, you know, two years ago, he was a breath of fresh air. Uh, uh, they traded a seventh round draft pick for him and Jeff Demps. And they got a guy who just about led the team in, in rushing the ball. Uh, but, back-to-back great games against the Indianapolis Colts in the playoffs. Uh, LeGarrette Blount's a decent running back, but he needs to be able to do it against every team, not just the Indianapolis Colts. Jonas Gray, as Sam Pericola uh, points out, uh, you know he's the type of guy that uh, was showing signs of, uh, of doing well, especially against the Miami Dolphins last year where Blount could not run the ball Against, they brought Jonas Gray in, and he did very well. Uh, one of the stats that I saw on Pro Football Focus is the fact that Jonas Gray ran against the most eight men in the box uh, in the league last year. That's that's kind of crazy to think about, uh, and he was still able to fall forward. Um, it's going to happen. It's going to be interesting to see how they turn things around. Uh, you know, with the loss of, of, of Ridley and with the loss of. Of course, uh, Shane Vereen, uh, and don't forget they got uh, Tyler Gaffney, the kid that they brought off of uh, you know the injured list from the Carolina Panthers. This was a kid um, at Stanford who uh, you know had a phenomenal senior season, over 1,500 yards rushing. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see whether or not that move to pick him off on waivers when Carolina thought that they could just slide him through. But the Patriots, you know, they did it with. The tight end from the Giants, they do it again now with Gaffney. It's going to be interesting to see if that pays off. And you, know, you talk about Sam's points on Jonas Gray, and I completely agree. One of the major differences between him and Blount is Gray's quickness. And it's why he was able to be effective in that game against Miami towards the end of the season, and Blount was not. You know, The offensive line really wasn't helping either back out. But in the second half, they bring Gray in. He's able to evade a couple tackles, make some things for himself, and it really sparked the whole Patriots offense and helped give them some momentum. They exploded in that third quarter and you know surged to victory from there, and Jonas Gray was at the center of that. Oh, definitely. Well, before we switch sides and start talking about special teams and, of course, the defense, uh, let's take a few seconds to hear from our sponsor. Baseball is in full swing, and you can be part of the action all season long at DraftKings.com, the official daily fantasy partner of Major League Baseball. Daily fantasy means no season-long commitments, just instant cash, instant gratification. Why wait to the end of the season to get paid when you can win huge prizes every day? At DraftKings, it's like a brand new season every time you play. Just pick two pitchers, pick eight position players, and pick up your cash. That's it. Ask Peter from Colorado. Last year, he won a million dollars in one day, simply by playing fantasy baseball at DraftKings. Hundreds of thousands of fantasy sports fans just like you have already cashed in at DraftKings. Now it's your turn. 
New contests start daily, so hurry to DraftKings.com right now and use the promo code NEWENGLAND to play for free in today's $10,000 fantasy baseball contest. DraftKings.com, official partner of Major League Baseball. Enter New England for your free entry at DraftKings.com. DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. This is Pop Sosier, play-by-play broadcaster for the New England Patriots, and you're listening to Patriots Beat. Well, welcome back to Patriots Beat. We've had a, a long time talking about the offense, so we're going to switch sides of the ball, but not right over to the defensive side of the ball, because this week the New England Patriots did the smart thing, and they turned around and signed their kicker and all-time points leader, uh, Stephen Gostowski, to a four-year contact worth just north of $17 million. This was a phenomenal draft pick back in 2006. There were some real misses by the New England Patriots in 2006, Lawrence Maroney being one of them, uh, Chad Jackson being the other, but they needed a kicker to replace all-world Adam Vinatieri, and lo and behold, they go and take a kicker in the fourth round, uh, out of Memphis in Steven Gostowski, and last year he became the all-time leader in his points scored for the New England Patriots. I'll never forget that draft. Uh, sitting down watching the draft, and we were all excited because we had Lawrence Maroney, the running back out of uh, Minnesota, uh, who Mike Shanahan said could be the best back in the league. Um, and then you had Chad Jackson, uh, you know, of course, he came from Florida, and he was going to be this great wide receiver. He had all the measurables. And, and the one guy that sticks is this kicker. Um, and it was funny, when he was drafted, I said to all my buddies, we were sitting around there, and I said, uh, whoever is the next Patriots player who to get drafted, I'm going to get his jersey. Well, it's been since 2006. I still haven't bought a Steven Gostowski jersey. Uh, maybe I'll have to do that this year. Uh, as they sign him to a four-year, $17 million deal. Great move on in my eyes, especially now with the extra point being pushed back uh, to the 15-yard line, essentially making it a 30-yard kick for an extra point. Uh, this is a guy who was 35 of 37 last year in field goals, and the last two years is north of 93% uh, in kicking the ball, a full percentage and a half ahead of the next highest kicker, who I believe is Shane Sweesom. So um, some great stuff there by the Patriots in hooking up their franchise kicker and getting him for another four years. And, Jeff, they didn't even need a collusion charge hanging over their head to get this done. <laughs> you know, just the pressure of the deadline to extend franchise tag players alone was enough to do it. As the Patriots, just like the other teams, comes down to the wire. They get it done, extend Goskowski, and again – they set the market at a position. We know that Belichick likes kickers and that he's able to scout them out clearly, bringing in Goskowski to replace Vinatieri. And that's something that it got a lot of discussion going into the Patriots playing the Colts in the AFC Championship game was just the comparison between the two and all that. And, you know, no disrespect to Adam Vinatieri, but just given the age gap, I clearly would have Steven Goskowski, who signed on for another four years. I don't care what Vinatieri's on. There's just no way he's kicking another four years. You know, that would have to be some pretty potent stuff to continue to last that long. So for my money, I, I think the Patriots got the decision right at the time. They got the cheaper player. He's proven to be 
just as effective. And the the only thing you could say is that 07 Super Bowl, they probably would have tried a field goal with Vinatieri, but no one has any idea of whether or not it would have gone in if they had done so with him. So for my money, I think there's a lot more pros than there are cons to making that switch. It worked out, and now we've got Goskowski here for four more years at least, and I'm excited about that. Oh, that's crazy. I mean, you think back and look at the fact that since 1996, the Patriots have had two and a half kickers. I'll give them a half kicker because the year that Gostowski got hurt um, and they had, I believe it was Shane Graham came in here in 2011 and kicked the last eight games of the season. So two and a half kickers since 1996. That is unbelievable. And uh, if anyone remembers uh, Adam Vinatieri, and and he came in as an undrafted rookie free agent out of South Dakota State, uh, and he beat out uh, Matt Barr in '96, and he had a very tough start to his career. Uh, in fact, there was a lot of talk that he might be cut, but then he hit, uh, I believe it was four out of five or five out of six field goals against the Baltimore Ravens in a victory in 1996. And as a as a rookie, he kicked in the Super Bowl. Uh, a Super Bowl that, of course, uh, lost to um, the Green Bay Packers when Vinatieri couldn't make that tackle on <laughs> on uh, Desmond Howard. But Vinatieri uh, was a phenomenal kicker. I mean, he chased down Herschel Walker from behind, um, you know, to get uh, to stop him from scoring a touchdown on a kickoff return. I mean, that's just insane to think about a kicker doing that. But at the time, he was 33 years old, and if you had told me in 2006 that in 2014 or 2015 that Adam Vinatieri would still be kicking. I would have told you you were on drugs. Uh, good for Adam Vinatieri. I mean, the guy has four Super Bowl rings. He's been to, uh, what's that, uh, six Super Bowls, seven Super Bowls uh, Adam Vinatieri has been to. Uh, you know, he, he was with uh, four with the Patriots and two with the uh, two of the Indianapolis Colts. So, uh that's uh, that's pretty impressive uh, for a run for a kicker uh, who has uh, three rings, so four rings actually. So uh, Adam Vinatieri was a phenomenal kicker. The fact that they brought in Steven Gostowski and really did not miss a beat, except for as you said, um, very surprising even to this day that they didn't try that 47-yard field goal and they went for it on fourth and twelve um, or fourth and seven, if I remember, but. I think that was the arrogance of that 2007 team. They never thought that they weren't going to get a first down. I mean, that team was unreal stacked from beginning to end, and it's a Velcro catch away from uh, the greatest season in NFL history. But uh, very exciting that uh, that Steven Gostowski stays on this team for another four years. Um, I, I love the move. I, I don't think you could have a, a better kicker, um, especially – uh, with them moving back the the extra point and kicking in the Northeast. Oh, absolutely. And he's proven now that he can get it done in big games. He's effective kicking in Gillette Stadium, which with the wind and the open tunnel there, you know, it's not always an easy thing to do, but he's one of the best kickers in the league. And so it's definitely a good thing to have him on board going forward. And Jeff, you know, said earlier when we were talking about Goskowski towards the beginning of the discussion that it's once again the Patriots setting the market at a position and it just it proves I think it reiterates that the narrative of 
the crafts being cheap is lazy and I think it's wildly inaccurate. You know, I think when you look at how they've paid positions, whether it be Mankins or Wilfork or Goskowski or you name it, that it's never a question of them being afraid or not being willing to spend money. That's never the issue. So I think people, when they say that, that's just that's being lazy. And when you really look at the facts, this is another one to add to the point that that's just not the case and that the crafts are absolutely willing to spend when it comes to putting a competitive product on the field and building a championship contender. Uh, they've always turned around and spent the money where it needs to be spent. They spent the money on Logan Mankins. They spent the money um, on Tom Brady, even though he's restructured over and over again. Uh, Richard Seymour uh, was one of the highest paid defensive ends. Vince Wilfork, uh, you know, big money. They've spent the money when they've had to spend the money. I mean, they gave Randy Moss a three-year, $27 million contract. Uh, I would not say that the, the Patriots are cheap. Um, but they're they're fiscal. They're fiscally responsible. You know, they 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 make the entire roster not just one or two players. As we talked about the shiny hood ornaments. You know, Demarius Thomas and and, and Des Bryant. These huge contracts signed by um, wide receivers. Calvin Johnson type of money. You know, when was the last time that uh, that the Detroit Lions you know sniffed the Super Bowl? Never. Uh, you know, I mean, this is, uh, you know, and, and all due respect to, uh, you know, the Detroit Lions and, and their fan base, you know, it's a, it's a long, uh, you know, long time team. Um, but they, you know, they spend, you know, 14, 15, 16 million dollars on, on, on a wide receiver. And as we talked about earlier in the, the program here, uh, the Patriots spend it well. They actually, um, spend the sixth amount, most amount of money on wide receiver in the NFL. The only difference is they have it spread over, you know, three, four, five players instead of, you know, spread over one guy who's the guy. And we, we saw that last year when you have a guy like Darrell Revis. Unfortunately, he's no longer with the team, but you have a guy like Darrell Revis who can absolutely, uh, you know, take a guy a- away. Uh, we look back at the 2013 season, the beginning of the season, where the keep to leave was on fire, and he took that number one receiver away. I mean, he shut down AJ Green, he shut down, um, you know, Jimmy Graham, uh, even though he's a tight end, absolutely shut him down. The Patriots have so many weapons, and and, and they can morph into any little thing that they do um, from here on out. So uh, that's the type of thing that that I, that I love about this team and and what they've done. And they're not cheap. They spend it to the cap. They spend it where they have to spend, and they go from there. So, you know, Bobby, instead of uh, kicking it into the, the defensive side of things, because we could probably talk all night about the defense, we'll hold off to next week to talk about the defense. Let's talk a little bit about uh, something that happened this week, the the ESPYs. Uh, the ESPYs, the, what's it, the uh, Excellent Sports Performance Yearly that's put on every, every season by the uh, – uh, by ESPN and uh, the Patriots won, uh, you know, two uh, honors, uh, an individual honor and, and a team honor. So the individual honor, of course, was Rob Gronkowski getting the comeback athlete of the year, and, and then the best game of the year went to the New England Patriots and Seattle Seahawks 
for the Super Bowl. So let's first talk about the Gronk, who also came out with a book this week called It's Good Being Gronk, or It's Good to Be Gronk. Yeah, and Gronk, you know, great celebration after it got announced that he won the award for Comeback Player of the Year, where he walks like he's going up towards the stage, turns around, and chest bumps all his brothers. I thought that was funny and vintage Gronk, vintage Gronkowski family. And it's great to see him win that award. But let's be honest, the ESPYs are a joke. It's a fake, it's a fake <laughs> award show. It means absolutely nothing. I mean, LeBron got best championship performance. He didn't even win the championship. And he beat out the likes of a horse that won the Triple Crown. First time that's happened in 37 years. So the whole thing is absurd. Malcolm Butler somehow didn't get best play. How he didn't get yeah, play of the year. It's, it's arguably, I'm just saying arguably, you know, it's certainly one of, I'll hedge my bets, it's one of the best plays in sports history, one of the most meaningful, most impactful, with how much was on the line with that one play. You even take it deeper and look at beyond just that Super Bowl and the game, the legacies that were on the line there. Bowl. So, yeah. yeah, and Odell Beckham, I'm not even sure that the Giants won that game or not. They didn't even make the playoffs. Regardless, I know that. So, I love and that and that catch was made because Eli Manning threw it two yards behind him. Yeah, and it was a and don't get me wrong, it was one of the best catches I've ever seen. But Rob Gronkowski makes that almost exact same catch against the Denver Broncos about two weeks later. Yeah, so listen, it was it was certainly like you said, it was one of the best catches that most people have ever seen. I think it was certainly the best or the best catch of the year, but it wasn't the best play of the year it wasn't the most significant play of the year obviously so I thought that was ludicrous now I do love don't get me wrong the moments at the ESPYs that play on people's emotions whether it was Caitlyn Jenner or Devin and Leia still that stuff is awesome that stuff is great but the ESPYs as a whole the awards part of the ESPYs is a complete joke so the Patriots got snubbed in a couple of categories most notably Butler and I saw a lot of Patriots fans on my Twitter timeline who were very upset with that, preaching about how ESPN hates the Patriots. And listen, I do think that's true, but I also think the ESPYs is not even close to something that's worth getting worked up over. I actually did not watch the ESPYs. I haven't watched the ESPYs in years. Um, but, you know, I, I guess we got to bring it up as a little bit of pop culture. Um you know, it's just, it's funny that you're right. The the play of the year, the catch of the year, the play of the year, whatever the heck it was, does not go to a, a, a play that clinches a Super Bowl. You know, it goes from making Bill Belichick and Tom Brady into, you know, uh, uh, two guys that won three Super Bowls and then lost three Super Bowls in a row, you know, to... Uh, two guys that have won four out of six. I mean, I don't understand how Malcolm Butler, uh, a play that, you know, wins a championship, doesn't get it. I don't mind the LeBron, um, you know, best championship performance because LeBron really did throw, you know, the Cleveland Cavaliers on his back. I mean, no Kevin Love, uh, thanks to Kelly Olynyk. Uh, in the first round, and of course Antoine, what's it, Jameson, um, you know, hurt uh, earlier in that 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 game or earlier in the the series. 
uh, and going up against the Golden State Warriors team that won, what was it, 63 games there, Bob? You're the NBA guy. Yeah, so Golden State, you know, they led the league in wins, and Cleveland lost Kevin Love. Celtics fans, of course, remember that in the first round when Kelly Olenek yanked his shoulder out, and then Kyrie Irving goes down in game one, and... Yeah. Boy, I was way off. Kyrie Irving and Antoine Jameson. Jeez, yeah. thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, Jay, that was Jameson. He was he was there for Cleveland and LeBron's original stint. So, yeah, I'll give you that. You're 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 not in the ballpark, but you're on Yaki Way. <laughs> this is why I run Patriots beat and not Celtics beat, which you can hear uh, every single Saturday on CLNS Radio. Um, <laughs> But game of the year, game of the year, of course, I, I don't think there was, you know, any way you could not pick the Super Bowl. I mean, a game that, in my eyes, will go down as one of the best Super Bowls of all time. I, I think of the Super Bowls that I've I've watched in my lifetime, and there were a lot of stinkers, uh, you know, growing up. It started... For me, I, I really became an NFL fan in 84, so uh, that, of course, was Dan Marino uh, and the high-flying Miami Dolphins versus the uh, 49ers, and, and the 49ers, you know, you know, put the wool to, to the Miami Dolphins, and the following year, our beloved New England Patriots scored the first three points, but then lost 46-10, to 10, and, and then you just, you had nothing close. I mean, the, the Niners kicking the snot out of the Broncos, uh, you know, uh, 45 to 10, I believe it was. And it's just, or 55 to 10, excuse me. Um, just, you know, there was nothing, nothing close. And then it started to get a little closer as you got closer to the, uh, to the end of the 1990s, uh, which one of the best Super Bowls I remembered um, being, of course, uh, the St. Louis Rams uh, versus the Tennessee Titans when uh, they came up one yard short. Other than that, I mean, this was probably one of the best Super Bowls I can remember. Uh, except, uh, I'll, I'll give a you know a shout out to Super Bowl Thirty Six with the Patriots. That was a phenomenal Super Bowl. Um, you know, one with uh, no time on the clock with Adam Vinatieri field goal. Of course, the uh, the game against the Carolina Panthers, which was a defensive slugfest that turned into an offensive explosion. Uh, but you look back and, and and you the Pittsburgh Steelers and Arizona Cardinals a few years ago back in 2008 that was a phenomenal Super Bowl. But this past year, Bobby for the money, I, I just can't think you know of a better better ending. Not only because I'm a Patriots fan, but just you look at this. This is a game that's going to be talked about forever. That interception. You know, should they have handed the ball off to Marshawn Lynch? Uh, how does Tom Brady come back from, you know, uh, 14 points down, I'm sorry, 10 points down uh, in the fourth quarter against arguably the best defense since the 1985 Chicago Bears to score two touchdowns? And then you have that miraculous catch again in Arizona uh, with Curse bobbling the ball, catching the ball, somehow getting the ball. And then the interception by the quarterback who was in coverage on the bobble catch. I, I, there's just so much that played into that. This was as emotionally charged a Super Bowl 
as there's been in a while with all the deflate gate nonsense going in where so many people were piling it on, including in the national media. I mean, the amount of the lack of journalistic integrity that was shown, even from prominent stations, both TV and radio, from prominent writers who you know have a lot of national recognition and you know who are well respected in the media industry, there was just such a lack of journalistic integrity in how this whole thing was covered, really right from the get-go. And ironically, one of the few people who that statement doesn't apply to is Bob Kravitz, the guy who broke the story. No problem with the way that he covered and handled this story whatsoever. But so many people from when he broke it, just so much, a complete lack of responsibility in my eyes. So there were so many people hating the Patriots. There was ridiculous chatter like they should be, you know, pulled from the Super Bowl and just all this talk that didn't even make sense, some of it. And then you get to the game itself, and it's an amazing game. It's going back and forth. And then at the end, you go just a complete swing in both directions of the pendulum where (laughs) Curse has this catch that is a complete kick in the balls for Patriots fans. And, of course, leave it to NBC. You know, Doug Collins, uh, one of the guys who I watched the game with, uh, he just kept pointing out that it seemed like every other sentence out of Doug Collins' mouth was negative about the Patriots. And sure enough, Curse makes the catch, and they've got a little montage ready to go on David Tyree and the Manningham catch and everything else. You know, they just had that one sitting there in the chamber ready to fire off. And then you go to this improbable play. I'll be honest, you know, it, I just can't remember a slant pass being picked off like that. Forget the magnitude, just the play itself. I can't remember a situation where that pass, that route gets intercepted. So to happen in the end zone by Malcolm Butler on just a great play all around on New England side from Brandon Browner, setting him up, allowing himself to do that. The preparation, you know, we of course heard Butler in the coming days after the play talk about, He screwed it up in practice. He was playing too far back. Belichick talked to him about it, reprimanded him, and he knew to just trust his instincts, and that was was what he was going to do. He was going to let it ride. And, you know, the speed, the ability to get there so quickly is one of those traits about Malcolm Butler that gets people excited about him, you know, carving out a legitimate career for himself, not just being a one-hit wonder. And it was just an amazing series of events to – cap off what had already been a fantastic Super Bowl. So, yeah, for my money, with everything that went into that game, it certainly was one of the best Super Bowls this millennium and one of the best Super Bowls of all time. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more, you know, and I'm thinking after that curse catch, I'm thinking die hard, you know. Oh, man, I can't fucking believe this. Another basement, another elevator. The same shit happened to the same guy twice. I think it was on uh. Tom Brady's face, too, to be honest. I think regardless of what he says, just the look on his face, it seemed like that look of not again, like you've got to be kidding me, is what was going through his mind. <laughs> uh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, 
You got some hot takes there, uh, Bobby? Uh, I think my hottest was the ESPYs. I just think it's a <laughs> complete joke. But, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much out of fire at this point, Jeff. <laughs> well, do you want to write about the New England Patriots? Do you want to talk about the New England Patriots? Do you just want to, you know, talk football in general, write about football? Well, CLS Radio and the Patriots beat team is looking for new writers. Uh, send your resumes to Jeff. Oh, I'm sorry, J. Kane, and that's K-A-N-E, at clnsradio.com. I'll be taking a look at some new writers. We're looking for two to three, maybe even four writers for the Patriots beat team. And if you have uh, experience, that's a plus, but not a uh, requirement. If you want to talk on the Patriots postgame show, we're looking at uh, podcasters as well. So, of course, send your resumes or inquiries to J. Kane, and that's K-A-N-E, at CLNS Radio. Next week, Bobby and I will be back. We'll be talking New England Patriots. We'll go on to the defensive side of the ball. Plenty of things to talk about there, from the turnover uh, at the defensive back position to, of course, the uh, turnover at the defensive line position, linebackers, everything there. Hell, we might even get into the greatest punter of all time. You never you never know uh, with us here on Patriots Beat. But for Bobby Kravitsky, I am Jeff Kane, and this has been another Patriots Beat. We'll see you guys on the flip side as we are one step closer to Patriot training. Sports Talk Radio, CLNS Radio.